Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You are helping potentially not just yourself, but you're potentially helping all the people with a given disease who are going to come after you. One young mother with pancreatic cancer saw her disease practically disappear. And then a non-smoker was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and given just six months to live. Well, I have to tell you, he lived an additional four years and he actually had the opportunity to also travel the globe. A young man received a stem cell implant to cure a condition that now helps him produce healthy red blood cells. Now, all of this was possible due in large part to those things called clinical trials. And as research into various conditions and diseases increases, well, so does the money going into clinical trials. Get this, global spending on clinical trials is estimated to reach $68.9 billion a year by 2025. That's according to Grandview Research, a market research company. So why get involved in clinical trials? Well, a lot of good reasons. Clinical trials provide an opportunity to get access to medication or therapies that aren't yet available to others. And here's the deal. Successful clinical trials have led to patients beating diseases or adding many more years of quality of life. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with a disease, odds are that you said to yourself or somebody said to you, well, have you looked into clinical trials? You're probably wondering a lot of things. Who pays for them? Do they work? What about placebos? How do you know if you're actually going to get one? How do you know if the clinical trial is really working? How do you know if it's a good clinical trial? What are the control systems in place? In this Commando On Demand podcast, I wanted to answer all of those questions for you. And this podcast is a great referral source for anyone who wants to learn more about clinical trials. Joining us in this podcast and providing his expert opinion is renowned Dr. David Fogelman from MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And before we get started, a quick thank you to some of our partners, because they help make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. When you're hiring, you don't want to waste time sorting through dozens of irrelevant resumes. You want an efficient way to get to a short list of qualified candidates. You need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes. Set up screener questions based on your job requirements. Then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Discover why 3 million businesses use Indeed.com for hiring. Post a job today at Indeed.com slash hire. Search for greatness. Search Indeed. Hey, welcome back. Joining us on this podcast is Dr. David Fogelman. He's a leading oncologist. He specializes in treating pancreatic cancer at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. David is an expert in clinical trials. I'm so thrilled that he's here on this podcast with us because you are going to learn so much. And the thing that I love about David Fogelman, well, you know how some doctors like to use all that mumbo jumbo and you can't understand what they're saying? Not David. So Dr. Fogelman, thanks for joining us. So Dave, we're going to talk clinical trials today and let's just start at the beginning. Okay. How do you define a clinical trial? What is a clinical trial? A clinical trial is the mechanism that physicians use to test new drugs, new surgical techniques, new ways of doing things. 
a lot of the time these are drug trials, but they don't have to be. Sometimes they're trials of new ways to do a surgery. Sometimes they're trials of something as relatively simple as dietary intervention or even exercise. But clinical trials are ways that we systematically gather information on a new way of doing things or on a new drug to see how beneficial it is to try to identify what the side effects are and to try to ultimately figure out where in the course of medicine should we use whatever it is we are testing. See, now that's interesting because anytime that I've always thought a clinical trial, I thought for sure it had to be uh, funded by some type of pharmaceutical drug company. So where does the idea for a clinical trial actually evolve? So ideas for clinical trials can come from a variety of sources. Yes, some of them come from drug companies. Many of them are producing new medicines, and they think that a medicine might work well against one disease, perhaps better than some other disease. But clinical trial ideas can also come from physicians themselves. Oftentimes, we'll you know, over the course of taking care of patients in the clinic, we might make observations and we might come to a realization that a certain type of patient might have a disease which you know, could potentially benefit from a therapy that we haven't thought to try yet. And so a lot of the times the idea for clinical trials comes from physicians and oftentimes we will approach uh, either drug companies or we will approach government funding agencies or even organizations uh, that uh, are non-governmental organizations, but which are philanthropic organizations that fund research. And oftentimes, we will approach those organizations with an idea. Now, of course, you have to have some reason to, to do the study. You need to have some data, right? Absolutely. Clinical trials don't just arise from, you know, from thin air. You really have to have, you know, good, solid evidence or a suggestion that something will work. Much of the time, this is from laboratory data. Sometimes it's from our clinical observations. But fundamentally, we only really want to try to do clinical studies that we think have a chance of helping people. And so really, the bar is actually relatively high for, you know, to have enough background data before you launch into a clinical trial. So can you give us some examples of clinical trials that have become standard care for patients? I mean, things that doctors said, you know what, I really believe that this is going to work this certain way. And then, golly gee, I mean, you get in there and you really have made a dramatic difference in people's lives. Oh, absolutely. There are plenty of those to go around. I'll start with just the disease I treat. I treat pancreatic cancer. For many years, for decades, from the 1950s until the late 1990s, the mainstay of pancreatic cancer treatment was a drug called fluorouracil, and to be sure, we still use that medicine today. But in 1997, a clinical trial was performed by you know, those who came before me, and they tested the They tested something new. They tested a drug called gemcitabine for pancreatic cancer. And what these physicians did was they took a number of patients who had pancreatic cancer. Half of them got the standard of care, which was the fluorouracil. The other half got this new drug. And the new drug was based on laboratory data. Interestingly, they originally thought gemcitabine would be an antiviral drug, and they were testing it for use against viruses wow. until someone at the drug company said, hey, wait, this might work well against cancer. They tested it in some you know, Petri dishes full of cancer cells. It seemed like it was effective, and ultimately, it led to clinical trials. And so in 1997, a clinical trial compared gemcitabine against fluorouracil, and the gemcitabine outperformed the fluorouracil people lived longer, they felt better, they had, mm -hmm. more, they had more weight loss. 
And so gemcitabine became the standard of care for pancreatic cancer. And then since then, we've continued to improve on gemcitabine. Uh, some recent clinical studies compared the combination of a second drug called natpaclitaxel with gemcitabine against gemcitabine alone. And they found that the combination was superior to the gemcitabine. Again, people live longer. Likewise, a different study performed in Europe compared a three-drug cocktail called fulfirinox against gemcitabine. And they had an, what seems like an even better result. Patients lived yet longer. Uh, they were more likely to shrink their cancers. There were more side effects to be sure, but because the investigators uh, did this trial in a very systematic and very appropriate way, we know exactly what side effects they saw and were able to now uh, inform patients, hey, look, we can use this new cocktail. It works better than the old standard, but here are the side effects that you can expect. And that's an example of a clinical trial that was successful and which also was very informative in that we know what to expect now from this new regimen. You speak of clinical trials. How many people need to participate in a trial? I mean, are you talking 50 people, 100 people before it's like, yes, this is something that we're going to actually take to market and we're going to tell every doctor far and wide that this is a new treatment? Kim, that is a great question. And it gets to what the goals of clinical trials are. And there are different types of clinical trials and there are different phases of clinical trials. So let me give you an example. A phase one study, at least in the cancer world, is actually a study of a new drug, not even to see if the drug works, but rather just to figure out what dose of the drug should we use. Now, typically, these are relatively small studies, perhaps 30-some-odd patients. And the way they work, the first group of patients gets a very small dose of the drug. We look and see what kind of side effects they have. Whether or not it works is really a secondary question. Okay. But then, provided it's safe, we move on to a slightly higher dose. And if that's safe, we move on to yet another higher dose. And ultimately, we're trying to figure out what the appropriate dose is. And so we look to see whether or not people are experiencing toxicities at any particular dose that tells us that that's too much. And if that's the case, we you know, back down and we figure out, okay, we're going to use not you know, 300 milligrams, but that's too toxic, so maybe we'll back down to 250 milligrams. And so the purpose of a phase one study is really just to figure out how much of the drug should I be giving someone. Uh, whether or not it works is secondary, and that brings us to what's called a phase two study. So generally speaking, a phase two study takes a given dose of whatever drug it is you're testing. So let's say we, from our phase one study, we've said, okay, 250 milligrams is our dose, and we will now take a bunch of patients, and we will give everyone the same dose, and we will look and see what kind of side effects we have, and now we're starting to look to see what is the efficacy, what's the benefit that people are getting from this approach. Now, these are not randomized studies. These are not placebo-controlled studies, generally speaking, and there are exceptions, but generally speaking, a phase two study is meant to just give everyone the same dose and to try to figure out, okay, Roughly speaking, how well do we think this works? Okay. And then if you see that a phase two study does performs well, if you see that the drug uh, gives you the result that you want, you then consider a phase three study. A phase three study, and again, there are you know, there's a relatively large number of phase one studies, fewer phase two studies, and phase three is sort of the tip of the pyramid. It really takes a high, uh, really good efficacy uh, to convince people to fund a relatively large phase three study because phase three studies are relatively large. In these, what you're trying to do is you're trying to determine if 
a given drug output, not just as well by itself, but really outperforms whatever standard of care you currently have. And so in a phase three study, the phase three studies are generally much larger. Typically, uh, they might be 300 to 500 or even 800 patients. Wow. And in a phase three study, what you're doing is you are now randomizing patients to your new drug or new concept versus the standard of care. And sometimes they're blinded. Sometimes you know, people know what it is they're getting. Sometimes they don't. But nevertheless, your, your goal is to look to see whether whatever it is you're doing uh, that's new, how that compares to your old standard and whether or not it's truly better. Now, when you plan these studies, we have not just physicians who participate, but actually something critically important for these are statisticians. We really want to, you, our statisticians really help design the study. They help us figure out how many patients do we need to demonstrate whatever it is we're looking to demonstrate. Because on the one hand, you want enough patients to show what it is you think you're going to show. But on the other hand, you don't want to unnecessarily expose more patients than you have to to a drug or product or, uh, or something that might not work. And so you really have to plan these studies meticulously, uh, both with physicians, with nurses, with pharmacists, and even with statisticians. Coming up next, some really important parts about clinical trials. Dr. Fogelman is going to explain how clinical trials are supervised. And in case you're ever wondering, like, I mean, am I going to get a placebo? How would I really know? Well, he's going to answer those really important questions, too. But first, let's hear from one of our partners because they help bring you Commando On Demand. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss an opportunity to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Commando On Demand a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at invest.robinhood.com, invest.robinhood.com. Okay, you're back. As we heard earlier from Dr. Fogelman, clinical trials are really carefully structured. Now we're going to go in just a little bit deeper. We're going to learn how the trials are monitored, which patients receive placebos, how patients can afford to take part in the trial. I mean, who's going to pay for all this? And really, I thought it would be interesting to figure out, if you're in a clinical trial, how you can talk to other people who actually may be in the same clinical trial. This is a critical component. So any research done in the United States, any drug research, is monitored uh, under guidelines uh, from the government. And in fact, there are uh, data safety monitoring boards, which are composed of clinicians and statisticians and ethicists, which will look at the results of the study as the study is going on. And they will you know, hope they will monitor whether or not patients are experiencing too much toxicity. They'll monitor whether the study is, on the one hand, perhaps futile, or perhaps if it's so great, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is rare. But if you have a true blockbuster, you know, sometimes they actually stop the study early and say, hey, wait, this new drug is much, much better. Right. So you have data safety monitoring boards. But in addition, any given hospital that 
participates in research is mandated to have an institutional review board. And I can tell you that I serve on one of the institutional review boards here at MD Anderson. And the job of the institutional review board is first, they actually review a study before it even starts to make sure that we think it's ethical, to make sure that it's going to address the question that we think that the study is meant to address. We then monitor the clinical trial over the course of the study uh, as patients are being enrolled and as patients are being treated. And in fact, part of my job is to approach my various uh, colleagues and say, hey, you know, we see that you have a fair amount of toxicity. Is there an issue here? Um, or you know, to we make sure that the study is enrolling uh, at the rate that we think it's going to enroll? And so these institutional review boards monitor the progress of the study. They monitor the study as it starts. They monitor the progress of the study. And in fact, the study technically does not end until the investigators submit a final report to the institutional review board. Okay, so that, that's really fascinating to me because I didn't know any of that existed. But one thing that always comes up in clinical trials is the concept of the placebo. Okay. Who gets the placebo? And how do you know if you're the one that's going to get the placebo and not the, not the drug that might actually help you live a little bit longer, a better life? So, Kim, that is a terrific question. So first, keep in mind, not every clinical trial actually uses a placebo. And, and, and just for the listeners, a placebo is a pill or some other mock intervention that's really you know, not the actual drug or not the actual intervention that you're testing, but rather in the case of a pill, perhaps a sugar pill. Uh, they've had placebos in the form of for studies of acupuncture. They've had fake acupuncture where they put needles in different places than, than you're supposed to. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> okay. So, no, this, so no, there's different ways to... There's different ways to do placebo-controlled trials. That said, it is ethically mandatory, and the IRB and data safety monitoring boards will make sure that when you are even discussing the possibility of participating in a clinical trial with your physician, number one, we absolutely positively tell patients, hey, there is a chance, perhaps it's 50-50, perhaps less, there is a chance that you may be given a placebo. And what we will do is oftentimes those placebo-controlled studies are blinded. Okay. So the, the, neither the patient nor the physician oh, okay. will know what it is that the patients are getting. I'll give you an example. We have an ongoing clinical study right now testing a new drug for pancreatic cancer. And we don't know how well the drug will work. It's meant to be used not as your initial chemotherapy, but as sort of a maintenance chemo after you have had a, a several months of chemotherapy. And this drug, this study is actually a placebo-controlled study. So after patients get their chemo, after we see that they're doing well, we enroll them onto the study. Three-fifths of patients are given the actual drug. Two-fifths are given the placebo. So it's, it's three out of five patients that get the actual drug. Right. I don't know if the patient is getting the drug. The patient doesn't know if they're getting the drug. But nevertheless, we treat them as if they are. We prescribe the, you know, the medicine, which goes to our investigational pharmacy. The, the folks in the investigational pharmacy know what our patients are getting, but they don't tell us. And so the patient goes down to the pharmacy. They pick up their set of pills, whatever they may be. And we monitor the patients as if they are getting you know, the drug. And if we, we mark down 
what side effects they have. And there are patients who have side effects on placebo. Really? And we mark, oh, absolutely. You know, there are, you know, a lot of these are psychological. A lot of these are simply related to the cancer itself and oh, not actually that would make sense. to the medicine. Yeah. And so, yeah, no. So, it, you know, so sometimes these placebo controlled studies can be very helpful. And, you know, and we, everyone goes into this eyes open. Everyone goes into this understanding that number one, they know that they might be getting a placebo. And again, a lot of the time it's not appropriate to give people a placebo. And if that's the case, I will not refer them to a study that offers a placebo if I think that that is not in their best interests. Um, but the, you know, but either way we monitor the patients. And then at the end of the study, the, you know, whoever's monitoring the study will send a report. Okay. We see that patients who were on the real drug had this much benefit. The patients who were on the placebo had other, whatever other outcome. And that way you really, it's really a, it's a very pure way to do a clinical trial. But at the same time, um, patients might get the, get the placebo. They have to understand that that's a possibility. And, you know, I would, uh, personally, I would not give, put people on a placebo-controlled study if I did not think that, you know, some time on a placebo would really be detrimental to their health. Have you ever sat there and you thought to yourself, you know, I bet you he's on the placebo or she's on the placebo, and then it turns out that they weren't? Uh, that does happen. Uh, you know, of course, you can't help but speculate yeah. as to whether a patient is on the placebo or on the real pill. And sometimes you see side effects, which you can really only attribute to the pill, right. to the real medicine itself. And so in those folks, you have a pretty good idea. But for some cases, you don't know. And you know, I have one patient on such a study who has had a very good outcome, but he's also had no side effects. I don't know if he's on the oh, yes. placebo or if he's – and so we go – and we actually go back and forth. Well, if we take you off the study and try to get you the drug, you know, not as part of the study, right. you have to pay X amount of dollars for it. Is, you know, we don't know if you're actually getting it or not. Is it worth it? You know, and so it really does play into your subsequent decision-making for the patients. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's often a useful way to really determine if a new treatment is going to be effective. You know, you just mentioned a keyword. That's money. Do you have to pay for the costs? Do the health insurance companies, do they pay for clinical trials? In a sense. So when we have a possible clinical trial candidate, generally speaking, we, whichever company is sponsoring the study, uh, often it's drug companies, sometimes it's the NIH, sometimes it's philanthropic donations. But whoever is sponsoring the study uh, will generally pay for the experimental portions of it. And so they, they will generally pay or provide uh, the new drug. They will generally pay for or provide uh, any special testing that goes along with the new drug. But for the standard of care treatment for you know all the usual blood work and all the usual CAT mm -hmm. scans, so that goes to the patient's insurance. And so before we actually enroll a patient, we will actually, we actually and we have research nurses who do this, we will actually contact the patient's insurance company and say, hey, uh, you know, insurance company, we would like to put Mr. Smith here on a clinical trial. Will you agree to cover the, again, not the experimental stuff, but just the standard of care stuff? Will you continue to cover the blood work? Will you continue to cover the standard of care CAT scans? And so we, you know, although you don't have to have an insurance company do that, some people, some patients, uh, particularly patients from foreign countries who don't have American insurance, will actually pay for the cost of those things themselves. Um, but for patients, generally speaking, with American insurance, uh, we will actually make sure that their insurance company agrees to cover, again, not the experimental things, but just the standard stuff. 
You know, when you start looking at clinical trials, you start doing any type of research on the internet. Um, but I'll tell you, it can get really overwhelming. I mean, of course, you have clinicaltrials.gov. Where's That's the, a very useful site. I mean, is that the uh, best place to go? Although I'll tell you, I looked at and I couldn't, you know, my degree is obviously not in the medical profession. I found it sometimes very difficult to actually understand what people were writing about. Uh, but is that the best resource to go to? Clinicaltrials.gov is an excellent resource. Essentially, all clinical studies that we do uh, get listed in clinicaltrials.gov, which, by the way, just for your, the sake of your listeners, is a database uh, which you can search for by disease, you can search for by drug, you can even look for you know trials by city or by even by institution. And the what this website does is they basically list all the different clinical trials. You might type in, for example, pancreatic cancer and come up with a list of 100 different studies, which you can then narrow down. You might say, okay, we want metastatic pancreatic cancer, we want chemotherapy, metastatic pancreatic cancer, and you can whittle down the list to a more refined search. But it's very useful, and I encourage my patients to look through this periodically uh, because you know sometimes we may not have a clinical trial for a given patient, and, and perhaps it's appropriate to find one. And oftentimes, uh, you know, going through this database will give you some ideas as to you know whom you might talk with about participating in a clinical trial. At what point in a patient's treatment should they actually start exploring clinical trials? Is it when they're first diagnosed or is it when it gets to that point where maybe the the chemo isn't working or maybe the medicine isn't working like it used to and surgery is not an option? Kim, that is a that is the million dollar question and it's something that I really spend a lot of time speaking with my patients about when I see them in clinic because there are different trials for different you know, points of a patient's disease. For example, again, I'll use my uh, sure. my own interest of metastatic pancreatic cancer. For patients with pancreatic cancer, we have a number of clinical trials which patients can participate in before they have any other treatments. So, for example, we have a study that combines chemotherapy with immunotherapy, but patients have to have had no prior chemotherapy for their metastatic disease. But at the same time, we also have clinical trials for patients who have had prior chemotherapy and where the chemotherapy either stops working or perhaps they are, perhaps the chemo does very well and they simply need a break from the chemotherapy. And so there are different clinical trials geared for patients at different stages in their disease. It's never wrong to ask a physician if they think that a clinical trial for a given disease uh, is worthwhile. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, sometimes there is an issue that you don't have a good clinical trial for a patient. Sometimes there's the issue that patients might not be healthy enough to participate in the clinical trial because generally speaking, clinical trials really want to you know, pick the healthiest patients because they want to give whatever drug it is they're testing the best chance of working. And so, you have to ask, am I healthy enough? You know, do I meet you know, the clinical criteria for a clinical study? Is there a clinical study you know, either at this institution or some other nearby institution that might be beneficial for me? But even beyond that, you know, is the – listen, participating in a clinical trial requires a lot of extra time and effort from not just the physicians but the patients. You know, patients who live three hours away you know, might have to come in 
once a week, twice a week, three times a week to participate in the clinical trial. And sometimes just the logistics get in the way. You know, yes, I could participate in a clinical trial of drug X, but then I have to be here three times a week and that's too much for me. And so sometimes it's just the logistics of participating that make clinical trials inappropriate for patients. So it, you really, it, there's really a constellation of things that you really need to, at least from the point of a physician, you really need to sit down with the patient and go through and say, okay, here are the potential side effects. Can you handle this? Are you strong enough? Yes. Does the schedule for the study meet with what you can do? Yes. You know, does the study require things that you can do like biopsies or special uh, radiology testing? And so you really, you really have to make sure that all the stars line up. Um, for a for someone to really be a good candidate to participate in a trial. And a lot of the times it does, but sometimes it's not appropriate. And really that's a often a conversation between the patient and their doctor. You know, we talk a lot about technology and how it's advancing medicine. Uh, let's say somebody lives three hours from Houston. They can't get to MD Anderson three times a week. Are, are there devices and gadgets that can help facilitate this clinical trial? Great question. So something that is on the horizon, which isn't in the mainstream right now, but which I can envision being in the mainstream, would be the role of telemedicine. Right. You know, uh, for example, if you really what you're looking for from a patient is just to make sure that they're feeling well, just to make sure that, you know, that they aren't having any terrible side effects, sometimes a phone call or even a, you know, a Skype interview might be sufficient. Uh, sometimes we'll ask you know, local doctors to you know, perform labs or get a basic checkup. Um, and so a lot of, you know, so the role of technology, I think, is something that we are expanding into. I think that's still kind of in its early stages right now. But yeah, in the future, you know, could we you know, use technology to make clinical trials available to patients who live further away? Yes, possibly. And that's something that I'm looking forward to seeing over the coming years. So you have three to 500, 800 people in a clinical trial for your larger studies. So you have all these people. Is there a place where they can communicate with each other or is everybody pretty much solo on their own path? Another terrific question. So there are a lot of organizations uh, that have message boards where people communicate. There are in the case of you know cancer organizations, there are a number of cancer organizations dedicated to various cancers. For example, in pancreatic cancer, there is the PanCan organization, which are useful not just at promoting research, but also by disseminating information to patients. And so these can be very useful. And yes, there are message boards. Uh, I know that Johns Hopkins has had one for pancreatic cancer, where patients can write to each other and communicate in fairly live with instant results where patients can discuss with each other, hey, I you know had been recommended one clinical trial. Has anyone heard of this? Does it, has anyone heard of some other drug? So the answer is yes. The answer is there are such message boards out there. It does sometimes take a little bit of looking to find them. As many of you know, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in December of 2017. Boy, it was so devastating. And as her primary caregiver... I became her primary health advocate. And anytime you mention pancreatic cancer to anybody, boy, I'll tell you, their face just goes, oh, man, I can't believe that. Well, I'm really so happy and I'm so pleased, so blessed to say that my mother went through chemotherapy, targeted radiation. She had the 14-hour Whipple surgery 
And as I was talking to Dr. Fogelman recently, I said, you know, she's driving me nuts. And he said, that's what I love to hear. When my patients are driving everybody around them crazy, I know they're feeling great. While my mother wasn't eligible for a clinical trial, as I was investigating, I kept coming across this phrase, informed consent, informed consent. Well, I didn't really know what it meant, even after reading everything about it. So coming up next, we're going to have the answer. But first, a special thank you goes out to one of our Commando On Demand sponsors. As America's digital pro and a successful business owner for over 20 years now, I know it takes the right tools to get the job done. And what's great about owning a business today is that there are so many different software programs designed specifically to save you time and money. And that's why I'm super excited to tell you about Kepterra. You have to check this out. At kepterra.com slash Kim, you'll find over 700 specific categories of software, everything from brewery software to email marketing to yoga studio management. Do you like to check reviews of products before you decide? Well, then peruse through over 750,000 reviews on products from real software users. No matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Visit Captera.com slash Kim for free today to find the tools to make an informed decision for your business. Captera.com slash Kim. Captera. That's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash Kim. Captera. Software Selection Simplified. Okay, so by now, you should have a pretty good feeling about clinical trials, how they're conducted, what they are, how they're monitored. And we're so lucky that Dr. David Fogelman from MD Anderson has been giving us a lot of critical information. Now we're going to go into another area. What the heck is informed consent? What does it mean to you? How do you know when a clinical trial succeeds? And really something that maybe you haven't thought about. How those who actually go through a clinical trial, well, they're actually giving all of us a gift. This is critical to clinical trials. We do not want to give patients a treatment, even if it's not a clinical trial. We, want, we do not want to give patients treatment where they do not understand what it is that they're getting, what the possible side effects are, what the risks are, and also what the upside is, what's the possible benefit, and also what possible alternatives they have to participating in a study. And so informed consent is actually a process where you educate patients, you explain to them, you know, what it is that, you know, you're trying to treat, why we're trying to, why we're suggesting treatment in a certain way. Um, and again, what else might we do if we don't do treatment X? Could we do treatment Y? And once you've had you know, the counseling, once you've uh, provided patients with the education, you know, then and only then do you say, okay, are you interested in pursuing this? If so, yes, and then we will have patients sign consent forms. But the, again, we lay out very clearly in our consent forms, and again, this falls under the regulation of the institutional review boards. They actually mandate uh, informed consent documents, and in fact, uh, the informed consent documents have to be fairly tightly controlled. Um, but we really uh, mandate that patients are, you know, given a good understanding of what it is we're doing, uh, what their other options are, if something goes wrong, what recourse do they have, um, you know, before we really uh, allow patients to participate. And so informed consent is not so much a document, although there is that, but it's really more of a process where we make sure that patients have that understanding. So you're in a clinical trial. 
and it's not going well for you. Can you quit? Absolutely. With standard of care for the United States is that a patient, for any reason at all, even for no reason, can quit a clinical trial anytime they like. There's no repercussion. The physicians, you know, generally being the, you know, having the patient's best interest at heart, will, you know, might ask if they could continue just to watch you and make sure that you do okay. Uh, but no, you are, as a patient, you are perfectly within your rights to say, hey, guys, thanks for offering the trial. I've had enough. I'm done. Sayonara. That's your prerogative. I know that you have tons of HIPAA laws and you can't talk a lot about patients, but can you tell us a really amazing success story about a clinical trial that you've experienced? Oh, you will love this. Okay. So we have an ongoing clinical trial, which looks at a new pill uh, for pancreatic cancer, but not for every pancreatic cancer patient, really for patients who have a very specific uh, aberration in their DNA. And we have a number of patients on the study, and this is a placebo-controlled blinded study. I don't know what my patients are getting. Okay, so I have a patient that I'm taking care of who is a relatively young mother who has developed a pancreatic cancer. She had chemotherapy. The chemotherapy went well. Her cancer has shrunk but has not disappeared. But where the chemotherapy, again, the chemotherapy has side effects, it has toxicities, and sure enough, she had toxicities the same as everyone else. And in her case, we put her on a clinical trial, which is a randomized trial. It's a placebo-controlled trial, so everyone is given a pill. I don't know if they're getting this new medicine that they, with a, we hope they're, they're getting or if she's getting the placebo. But we've put her on this new pill, and her tumor has continued to decrease to the <laughs> point where we can hardly see it. Wow. Of course, I suspect she's on the real thing. I suspect she's probably not on the placebo. I don't know that for sure. But she's done remarkably well. And she's continuing on the study. She's living her life. She's back at work. She's taking care of her family. And it, you know, she really feels just great. And so, you know, this is, you know, for her, the best case scenario, because instead of using heavy duty chemo, we're giving her a pill with relatively few side effects and it's working like a charm. Now, again, that's not the most frequent thing that happens, but in her case, she's doing terrific and I'm so happy for her. So when you're diagnosed with any type of disease... Doctors always present you with all these various options. You can go column A, column B, column C, and maybe there aren't that many options depending upon what the disease is and how it has progressed. But why should I even consider a clinical trial? So clinical trials are valuable in that they give you the opportunity to try a new drug or a new treatment or a new surgical technique before it becomes widely available. Now, sometimes these prove to be ineffective, but sometimes they prove to be very effective. And the idea of joining a clinical trial is that, you know, again, you have to have a certain appetite for risk, but you're asking for what might be the latest and greatest in terms of treatment for whatever disease it is that you're getting treated for. And it's a way to, part of it is for your own self-benefit, and frankly, part of it is for the benefit of everyone else who's going to come after you. Because when you participate in a clinical trial, you're, of course, we're hoping for the best for our individual patients. And of course, we're hoping that they will do well and that they will thrive. But at the same time, there's a lot of altruism that goes into this. You are volunteering yourself, you know, as I hate to use the expression, but sometimes as a guinea pig to see if a certain medicine works. And you are helping potentially not just yourself, but you're potentially helping all the people with a given disease who are going to come after you. 
Okay, there's no doubt that clinical trials can eliminate disease and cancer in some patients and definitely add years to the life of others. Now, sadly, this isn't the case for everyone. But really, anyone who participates in a clinical trial is leaving something so beautiful behind. That's hope. Hope for future patients who may benefit by the bravery of those people who took a chance. I mean, that's really a legacy, isn't it? Thanks for listening. And I also want to thank our guest, Dr. David Fogelman, for providing so many answers to questions that so many patients have about clinical trials. If you're going through a really hard time with your health, keep in mind three things. Mind, body, and spirit. The combination of all three of them are so incredibly powerful. If you know somebody who's thinking about a clinical trial, make sure that you share this podcast with them. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. Now, I hope you got as much as podcasts as we did here in the studios, putting it all together. That's one of the perks of working here, that we get paid to learn, and then we share that knowledge with you. Okay, your part is to pay it forward. It's free. So why not share this podcast, like it, and listen, if you have a topic that you'd love for us to explore and investigate, just let us know. And heck, if you have a question about something digital I can help you with, call 602-212-0058. Leave me your question and your contact information. That number again, 602-212-0058. I'll talk to you then.